All right, so uh, we said for us, we're going to start, we're going to go through first and second Samuel. We'll see how long it takes. At five o'clock, we did an over-under. They said 45 weeks. We'll see if we hit that or not. Uh, the theme for me, the big idea is in first Samuel 13, that David is a man after God's own heart. And I want us to know what that is. David was not sinless by any stretch. He was a murderer. He was an adulterer. He was a terrible father. And yet, he is called a man after God's own heart. Not only in 1 Samuel 13, before he does any of those things, but in Acts, after he's done all of those things. He's still referred to as a man after God's own heart. So that should give all of us hope. And we want to know what are those characteristics, what are those qualities, how do we cultivate those in our own life. And that's what we'll be looking at for the next 45 weeks or so. And we need to lay a little foundation first. And so a couple of weeks ago, we began with Hannah. Hannah was barren for a period of time and asking for a son. God, if you give me my, if you give me a son, I'll give him back to you. I'll dedicate him to you all the days of her life. And God hears Hannah's prayer, enables her to conceive. She has Samuel. When he's three or four years old, she takes him to that place up there on the screen. That's the tent of meeting. It was in a city called Shiloh. That's where God dwelled at this time. Um, and there was a priest named Eli, and so uh, we, we closed a couple of weeks ago with Hannah taking her son Samuel, again her toddler, to Shiloh, giving him to the Lord under the care and supervision of Eli. So we're going to pick up in chapter 2, verse 12. Uh, today there's a contrast between Eli's sons, who are, his names are Hophni and Phinehas, and Samuel. Verse 12, Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Now, it was a practice of the priests that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. You can picture that, right? The guy just stabs into the pot. Whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. Remember, Shiloh's where that tent is. But even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, Give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the person said to him, Let the fat be burned first, and then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, No. Hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. The sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. So we see Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are introduced as scoundrels, worthless men. That's what that means. Sons of worthlessness. Eli's sons, sons of worthlessness, which makes Eli worthless as well because they're his sons. We're going to focus on the behavior of Hophni and Phinehas. Eli is indicted as well, as you'll see as we get towards the end and then next week. Their whole family is corrupt. And so what you have here is these two sons says they're young men. You couldn't serve as a priest until you're 25. So think 25 years old. And they're, they're in this role as priests. They're scoundrels. They have no regard for the Lord. That is, they don't honor the Lord. They know him because they're priests. But they don't honor him. And they don't respect him. And that lack of honor and lack of respect is played out. Here's one example in how they treat the sacrifice. So there are multiple sacrifices In the Old Testament, one was called the fellowship offering, or your Bible may call it the peace offering. And this was the only meal or the only sacrifice that someone brought where uh, the, the animal was divided up three ways. So God would get a part, 
the priest would get a part, and then the worshiper, the person who brought the animal, they would get a part, and they would have a meal based with their part. This was a voluntary offering. You would uh, bring it if you were thankful. You'd bring it if God had fulfilled a vow. So like Hannah, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, after she conceives, after she gives birth to Samuel, she brings him back to the Lord, and she or brings him to the temple, and she brings a ton of stuff with her. A massive offering. It's a, it's a fellowship offering. She's saying, God, you held up your end of the bargain. You gave me a son. It was, a, or, there were, it was the only offering that you read in the Old Testament that was voluntary. It comes from a, a, a true heart of worship. And there are regulations around it in Leviticus 3 and Leviticus 7. I'm sure you all remember those from your study of Leviticus. And this is what you were supposed to do. The fat. The fat was the Lord's. You couldn't eat the fat. No one could. You couldn't eat the fat off of any cow, off of any sheep, or off of any goat. Because any of those animals could be used as a sacrifice. So just like Israelites had to avoid blood, they had to avoid fat. That was God's. So the first thing a priest would do after he killed the animal was burn the fat, these particular portions of fat of the animal. And that was God's. That was done first. Then the priest got a very specific part, the breast and the right thigh, which, whichever animal it was, whether it was a cow or a goat or sheep, that's what the priest got. And then the people, the, the offerer, uh, the, the worshiper got the rest and would use that for a meal for him and his family. You see up there on the screen the contrast between the way God laid things out and the way Hophni and Phineas are acting. First, they're taking their portion before God gets his. They're breaking in line. They're taking the fat, which was only for God. The Bible actually says you should cut off anyone who eats the fat. That's how, for us, it's like, what's the big deal? We cut the fat off our meat. We don't want it. But for, it was a huge deal for the Lord. That was his portion. And these priests were get, getting theirs first before they gave God what was his. They were eating the fat. They were just sticking the fork in. They were taking whatever came out instead of taking the pieces that God had assigned to them. And if the people pushed back at all and said, this isn't right, at least let us give God his portion first. Even if you're going to do the stab the fork in the meat thing, at least let us give God his portion first. They wouldn't. We want raw meat. We're not cooking anything yet. And they would take it by force if they had to. We live under the new covenant. You don't need an intermediary. You don't have to go through God through me or anybody else. We're all priests. We're a kingdom of priests. And so we have direct access to the Father, everyone, regardless of age, regardless of gender, any, none of that matters. Not so in the Old Testament. There's one family, Aaron's family, and they are priests. They are mediators between God and people. And there's one place, this tent of meeting, that's where God lives. And there are very specific instructions on how you approach him. Here's the kind of animals that you bring, and here's what you do with those animals. And so for these guys... They have a monopoly on the access people have to the Lord. So they want to bring an offering to the Lord in thanks. They want to bring an offering to the Lord because he fulfilled a vow. Just because they love him, they want to bring an offering. They can't. They can't. It's hard for us to fathom. They can't just do that. They have to go through the priests. And the priests, far from being a bridge, which is what a mediator is, it's a bridge between two people. Priests are supposed to be a bridge between God and the people. These guys are barriers. They're getting in the way. They're keeping people from worshiping the Lord. And the people have to go along with it. There's no other option. 
This is where God lives. And those are the people who he's put in charge of mediating his presence to the rest of us. If we try to approach God, we're going to die. This is the way it has to be. And these guys have a stranglehold on the ability of the people to encounter and worship the Lord. And so the verdict, they treated the Lord's offering with contempt. That's a strong word. It can also be translated blasphemy. That's how wicked what these guys were doing was. They had such a low regard for the Lord. They had such a low view of his holiness. They were contemptuous or they spurned. That's what that word literally means. They spurned God and that came across in the way that they acted. Very, very wicked men. Again, for us, sometimes we're going out of all the things that you're going to get hung up on. This this is it. This is the one. Very clear directives in Leviticus. Priests, you have a responsibility. You have this privilege. This is how you're supposed to function. They were doing the opposite of that. And they did it for over a long period of time. Contrast with Samuel. But Samuel, there's your contrasting word. But Samuel was ministering before the Lord. A boy wearing a linen ephod. Each year his mother made him a little robe and took it to him. When she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli the priest would bless Elkanah, that's Hannah's husband, and his wife, saying, May the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. Then they would go home, and the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. So we have Samuel, who is not a priest, who's acting like a priest or functioning like a priest. He's ministering before the Lord. That's what priests are supposed to do. He's wearing a linen ephod. It's a, it's a white tank top that kind of hung down low. First tank top ever. And his mother, thankfully, brought him a robe. Men shouldn't wear tank tops. We're clear on that, right? We don't have a dress code here except that one. I don't want to see you in a tank top. I don't care what your arms look like. They don't look good enough. So, Samuel... Functioning as a priest, wearing the priest's clothes, doing priestly duties, even though he's not from the family. Hophni and Phinehas, born into the priesthood, acting like scoundrels. You see the contrast there between those two. We see Samuel's righteousness, and and we'll see in a minute his righteousness, uh, it continues to grow. And these guys' wickedness continues to increase as well. We're going to pull out and look at Hannah. Remember, we looked at her two weeks ago. Her life was devastating for some period of years. She describes her own life. She says she's miserable. She's in deep anguish. She's bitterly grieving the fact that she can't have children. That's her state. And we said, for all of us, we go through some period, and we called it barrenness. It may not be physical, but spiritual barrenness. Some period of time where we're not, we're not seeing any fruit. We're frustrated. We're dry. We feel like God does not care, and he doesn't answer our prayers That he's forgotten about us in some ways. And when you're in the middle of that, it's easy to become hopeless. And when you're on the other side of that, it's it's difficult to know what, what was that even about. Rarely do we get perspective to know what God was doing, but some options. And we talked about these with Hannah. It could very well be that God uses that period of barrenness to refine your character, to make you more like Jesus. We actually don't see that in Hannah's life. She's presented as incredibly mature from day one. From what we see of her. 
One thing we do see in Hannah's life that may be true in ours is in those periods of barrenness, God reveals something about himself that you wouldn't know unless you suffered. Hannah refers to, the, to God as the Lord Almighty, the first person to ever do that in the Bible. She's the first person to ever address God as the Lord Almighty, the Lord of hosts. God showed her something about himself that he'd not showed Abraham, and he'd not showed Isaac, he'd not shown Jacob, he'd not shown Moses, he'd not shown Joshua. This was something fresh and new for Hannah that she, that she um, understood or was revealed to her in the midst of her suffering. And then Samuel is part of a larger plan. Hannah's suffering is in a larger context of what God is doing in the world. And the same thing is true for you. Your life is, it, your life is part of a bigger story. So if you're struggling this morning, if you would relate to Hannah, again, either literally or metaphorically, I don't know why. Maybe one of those three, maybe all three of those. Maybe God's trying to conform you more into the image of Jesus, and this suffering is a part of that. There may be something he wants to show you about himself that you can only learn through this struggle and through the suffering. Or it very well could be that the the barrenness in you is tying into something larger that he's doing in our city or in our world. What you see today... That period in Hannah's life was temporary. And God gives back way more than she gave him. Hannah gives God one son and she doesn't really lose him. She gets back three sons and two daughters. You can't outgive God. Jesus says this in Luke uh, 6.38. Whatever measure you use, it will be measured back to you, pressed down, shaken together, and running over in your lap. So the idea there, again, is you can't outgive God. Whatever you give God, he's going to give back to you multiplied. The only question is, well, what are you giving him to measure back to you with? If you give with a tablespoon, then God's going to give back a tablespoon. Pressed down, shaken together, and running over. You're going to get more than a tablespoon, but that's the tool that he has. That's the instrument he has to pour blessings back into your life. If you use a measuring cup, he's going to give a measuring cup back to you. Pressed down, shaken together, and running over in your life. If you use a bucket, he's going to give a bucket back to you. Pressed down, shaken together, and running over. He's always going to outgive you. He's always going to give you more than you give him. The only question is, what measure are you going to give him to use? That's what he's waiting on. What's the instrument? Is it a teaspoon, a tablespoon, is it a cup, is it a bucket? Don't hear that strictly or maybe even primarily in financial terms. It's not a prosperity message that if you give God $10, he's going to give you back $1,000. do not hear that. God does give back, pressed down, shaken together, and running over. Sometimes, maybe even many times, that's material. But it's not always. And it comes in different forms, it comes in different ways, and it comes at different times. The truth is... You can't outgive him. The question is, what measure are you giving him in order for him to then give back to you? Verse 22, now Eli was very old. He heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel, how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So Eli said to his boys, why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my son, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. How about that? Literally, the Lord delighted or the Lord took pleasure in their death. We'll get there in a second. 
So Eli now is very old. So we fast forwarded. The boys were very young. They were young men, 25. Now their dad is very old. So you've got decades in between with them committing these same behaviors. And then added into the mix, not only are they getting in the way of worship, not only are they not following directives for priests, they're sleeping with women whose job it is to serve in this holy place. We don't know. It would not be surprising if it was forced, but even if it was consensual, it's still sin. It's not their wives. What you see, there's this picture of Hophni and Phinehas using their position as priests to feed their own appetites, physically with food and sexually with these women. They're just taking advantage of their position. Priests are there to serve. They're not. They're far from serving. They're taking advantage of the people. It's terrible. It's wicked what they're doing. Eli, in his old age, tries to rebuke them. He hasn't done anything for years and years and years. He's derelict as a father. We'll see next week he's punished. Uh, This word of God comes through Samuel because he didn't restrain his sons. He didn't keep them from the evil that they were committing. And he knows about it. He didn't just hear. The people have been complaining about the way they treat the offerings. And people have been complaining about what they're doing with these women at the temple. And so finally, in his old age, he says something to them. He says, listen, our job, we mediate. If there's a conflict, we're the representatives of God. And we step in and we provide perspective and righteousness and justice. But if the issue, if our sin is with the Lord, who steps in? There's no one left. That's where you guys are. And they ignore him. Of course they ignore him. He hadn't said anything to them for years. Why are they going to listen to him now? And then you hear that that strange phrase, the Lord took delight or took pleasure in the death of Hophni and Phinehas. I don't know how that sits for you when you think of Jesus, when you think of this good father in heaven, that he would take pleasure in the death of anyone. And actually Ezekiel, a couple of different places, says he doesn't. Same word. God doesn't take pleasure in the death, even of the wicked. Second Peter, New Testament, same sentiment. God desires all to come to repentance. He doesn't want anyone to perish. So you think about the depth of wickedness of these two men, that a God who doesn't take delight in the death of anyone takes delight in their death. What does it say about the condition of their heart that a God who's slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who's gracious and compassionate, would say about two who are created in his image, that he would say about two who we know the death of Jesus, the benefits go back and forward, even though these guys are before Jesus. He died for them. He was slain before the foundation of the world. Eli said, who can mediate? Paul says it's Jesus. 1 Timothy 2.5, we have a mediator, it's Jesus. He gave his life as a ransom for all humanity, including Hophni and Phinehas. What does it say about the condition of their heart that the God who goes to those lengths to save them takes pleasure in their death? The depth of their wickedness and the condition of their heart. So, so hard. Very rarely do you see in the Bible this posture that God takes towards them. Maybe with Judas, depending on how you see him. He may be one who you put in this category. Pharaoh is another one. We get more insight into Pharaoh's heart. We'll talk about him just for a little bit. Pharaoh, wicked, ruthless man. He uh, had no regard for the Lord. He had no regard for God's people. Brutal taskmaster. 
tried to kill their sons just because they were having them. It ordered the midwives of the Hebrew for the, for the Hebrews. They killed the, if they have sons, throw them in the throw them in the river, kill them. That's the it's a it's a wicked wicked man. God sends Moses to say, "Let my people go so they can worship me." And Pharaoh says, "Who's the Lord? Who's Yahweh? I don't know him." I'm not responding to him. Make the people work harder. The reason they want to go worship is they have too much free time on their hands. So make them work harder. That's his response. And so God works these wonders, these signs through Moses. You can read about them starting in Exodus 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. In Exodus 10. He takes the staff and throws it down. It turns into a snake. And then Pharaoh's magicians do the same thing. And we read that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. We don't know who hardened it. Was it Pharaoh or was it... Or was it God? The next, uh, the, the next plague or the next sign is the Nile River turns to blood and Pharaoh's guys can do the same thing and his heart was hardened. And then there's a separation and the things that Moses can do, Pharaoh's guys can't do anymore. And the plagues kind of escalate in intensity. There's frogs and there's gnats and there's flies. And you can read, that's a direct quote, Pharaoh hardened his heart. So your whole empire is covered with frogs. And you ask Moses, make it stop. And Moses makes it stop and you harden your heart. And then your whole empire is covered with flies. And your whole, I, You think about the, the stubbornness in this man. And the wickedness in this man. He's seeing this. He's seeing his people suffer. It's obvious that this God of Moses is stronger than anybody on his side. And to continue to resist and resist and resist. And so by the end... You don't see Pharaoh hardening his heart. You see God hardening Pharaoh's heart. It's almost as, as if God says, okay, I'm gonna, you're not cooperating with me, and so I'm going to start cooperating with you. You're not going to submit to me, and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cooperate with you in your rejection of me. And you see the same thing in Hophni and Phinehas. Again, it's very rare in the Bible that you see God take this posture towards anyone. Pharaoh was created in this, but occasionally you do. And what it speaks to for me is the deep and profound holiness of God. He's a consuming fire. I think he delights in destroying cancer. I think he loves it. He takes pleasure in destroying cancer. And that's what these people have become in so many ways. The wickedness, the way it's, it's it, in both cases with Pharaoh and with Hophni and Phinehas, it's not just confined to their own hearts. It's spreading out among people. It's affecting nations. Pharaoh because he's keeping the Israelites in slavery. Hophni and Phinehas because they're not fulfilling their rightful function as priests but are keeping people from engaging God in worship. They literally are keeping people from the presence of the Lord. It's wicked. God has a consuming fire. He's done. He's done. Second Peter, don't, don't confuse his kindness, his patience with us. That's, he's, he's not okay with sin. He tolerates wickedness and sin because he's creating opportunities for people like us to say yes to him. But don't think that he's not serious about ending evil because evil corrupts what he's made. And so at some point with Hophni and Phinehas, their hearts are so hard, their rebellion is so significant, so deep, there is no hope for them. And so God does take delight. Just like he takes delight in destroying cancer and putting them to death because of what they're doing to his people. I don't know how that sits for you when you think of God. He's both a good father 
and a consuming fire. He's both. This one makes us feel good. This one makes us nervous. God holds both of those things together. What does that mean for you? Don't ignore the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You're not Hophni and Phineas. God is not going to delight. And if you care, then you're not them. They didn't care. That was the issue. They didn't respond. Ever. They didn't respond to the conviction of the Holy Spirit for years. They didn't respond to a rebuke from their father. They didn't respond to the pushback from the people. They didn't care. You care. You're not them. So don't, don't get in that mode where you're wondering if you're in the good graces of God. What I want you to think about is your own heart. When you sense conviction and you know what that feels like, respond. When you ignore conviction, when you ignore the voice of God, then you, it becomes harder and harder to hear him. Your heart becomes harder and harder. And we live in this world, we think we can compartmentalize our heart. And we have sin in this one area and it doesn't bleed into the others. And it's not true. There are no compartments in your heart. It's just one. And what you do in one area of your life impacts every area of your life. You can't say I'm righteous in everything except the way I date. Or I'm righteous in everything except the way I deal with money. Or I'm righteous in everything except the, what I do in my free time or what I look at on the internet or whatever those things are. It doesn't work that way. Sin in one area affects every area. Don't harden your heart to him. Again, you're not, you're not in danger of this, what we're reading about. But you step back and it shows us a picture of the character of God as a consuming fire. He's holy. He doesn't tolerate wickedness. And, and I, he's not going to. Ultimately, all of those things will be judged. Thankfully, we do have a mediator, Jesus, who bears the wrath of God so we don't have to. Thankfully, we have a good shepherd who pursues lost and wandering sheep. Thankfully, we have a father who even when you look at him and say, I wish you were dead, give me my money. And you squander it. He's still waiting on you to come home. And that God is a consuming fire. Samuel, verse 26, about him, the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature. And in favor with the Lord and with people. So again, you see the contrast between those two as Hophni and Phinehas are growing in wickedness. Samuel's growing in righteousness. Now a man of God, that's a prophet, came to Eli and said to him, This is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your ancestor, that's Aaron, and his family when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your ancestor, Aaron, out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest. To go up to my altar to burn incense and to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your ancestors family all the food offerings presented to the Israelites or presented by the Israelites. Why do you and that's plural. So why do y'all scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you, Eli, honor your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised the members of your family would minister before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. Those who honor me, I will honor. but Those who despise me will be disdained. 
The time is coming when I'll cut short your strength and the strength of your priestly house so that no one in it will reach old age and you will see distress in my dwelling. Although good will be done in Israel, no one in your family line will ever reach old age. Every one of you that I don't cut off from serving at my altar, I will spare only to destroy your sight and sap your strength and all your descendants will die in the prime of life. What happens to your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will be assigned to you. They will both die on the same day. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his priestly house. And those, those guys, that house, that line, will minister before my anointed one always. Then everyone left in your family line will come and bow down before him for a piece of silver and a loaf of bread. And please appoint me to some priestly office so I can have food to eat. The priests didn't, they didn't inherit there's 12 tribes in Israel, 11 of them get land, the priests don't. Deuteronomy 18, what God says to them is, you don't get any land, the Lord is your inheritance. So they, they live off the offerings of people. That's an Old Testament parallel to what we do. I live off your offering. I don't, I don't have food, I don't pay bills if y'all don't put money in the bucket. I don't get all of it, but I get a portion of it. Same thing for these guys. They get a portion of what was given. God says, I, I gave you that, and, and you, didn't, you didn't honor it. You didn't honor it. And so moving forward, here's what's going to happen. The people in your family line, they're all going to, they're all going to die young. None of them are going to reach old age. And any that happen to, they're not going to have a way of making a living because I'm cutting them off from serving as priests. Aaron was the first priest. He had four kids. Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. We're not going to dig into all this. It'll, it's, it's the weeds. Nadab and Abihu have already been... Killed by the Lord. They offer something called unholy fire. We don't have any idea what it is, but it sounds very familiar to what Hoth, or very similar to what Hophni and Phineas are doing. You can read about them. I think it's in Numbers 10 or Leviticus 10, one of those two. And uh, what we, we don't again, we don't know what they did, but they didn't follow the regulations that God laid out. And so God strikes them dead. They don't have any kids. Eli's from this family line of Ithamar, and his family's been serving as priests at Shiloh. And God says it's not going to happen anymore. And as we read through First and Second Samuel, his whole extended family gets devastated and decimated. And again, we'll just look at that as we come across those passages in the weeks and months to come. But it does happen. And there's a new priestly line from the family of Eleazar that's installed. Those guys start rising in prominence as Eli's line gets wiped out systematically. And by, I think it's 1 Kings 6, there's a guy named Zadok, who's a descendant of Eleazar, who's installed as high priest. And his family and his line runs until the temple is destroyed. And so this prophecy that you see from this man of God, it's played out over hundreds of years. And again, we'll see that as we read through. But what God says to Eli is, you're not boys. They're going to die on the same day. And we'll look at that in chapter 4. When that happens, and again, I don't know how that sits for you when you think of the character of God and you hear him making such a strong judgment against an entire family, an extended family. The, this house is what he calls it, the whole house of Eli. What does that say? He made a promise, and is he going back on his promise? Far be it from me. God continues to uphold his promise to Aaron. There's going to be someone from Aaron's family. Who will serve as priest. That's who the promise was made to. He's just moving to a different kid. He's moving from the fourth kid back to the third kid. 
Eli's family is not going to get to partake. What that says to me, our choices matter. Our choices matter. What Eli did, and you know this is true of any relationship. If you don't honor the relationship, you don't get the benefits of it. It's just the way it works. Whether it's with your, someone in your family, whether it's a friend, it's a professional relationship. If you don't honor the relationship, at some point, you lose it. You don't get the benefits of the relationship if you don't honor the relationship. And that's what God's saying to Eli. You haven't honored the relationship. You haven't held up. You haven't done your part. Because I made this promise to your great, 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 great granddad, you assumed you could do whatever you wanted. You allowed your sons to treat my offering with contempt. You never stepped in and tried to restrain them from their wickedness. How how can you think that I'm going to allow y'all to continue to do this? It's not just affecting you. It's It's infecting, affecting our entire nation. And it's, again, it, God is gracious and he's patient. He suffers with us long. But at some point, he says, we're done. If this is the direction that you want to go, then I'm going to allow you to go in that direction. And God withdraws himself from Eli and his sons. And he removes this priestly blessing from them. C.S. Lewis says it this way. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. That's in his book, The Great Divorce. Great book if you want to read it. Super fast. What C.S. Lewis is saying, I think you see here. Eli and his sons rejected relationship with God. And these are the consequences. And it's not like, ooh, they made a mistake. It's not like they dropped the ball once. or It's not even like they dropped it a hundred times. For decades, they had been living wicked, wicked lives. Eli, we'll see in chapter 4, he's fat. He's eating the stuff that they're, he's eating the food. He may not be physically performing, stabbing the fork into the pot, but he's eating what they're getting out of it. He's included, y'all, y'all are scorning my offering. And so God punishes them accordingly or judges them accordingly. And it does seem so harsh to us, but remember his character most clearly revealed in Jesus. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. He is a good father. He is a good shepherd. He pursues us and pursues us and pursues us. And there is a point that him and his wisdom knows and no one else can where he says, all right, I'll let you go. I'll let you go. This is a relationship, and if you're not interested in relationship, then I'm going to let you live apart from me. And if God is the source of all good things and you cut yourself off from him, what does that leave you? It leaves you no good things because he's the source of everything that's good. Those are the consequences. And again, it's not one, it's not ten, it's not a hundred. I don't know what it is. God in his wisdom alone knows. I want you to hear that as putting you on eggshells. You're not. You're in, your adoption is secure. Jesus very clearly says, nothing can snatch you out of his hand. Eli was not snatched out of the hand of God. Hophni and Phinehas weren't snatched out of the hand of God. They lived wicked, evil, rebellious lives for decades. And God finally said, okay, if that's, if that's what you want, then that's what you can have.
I don't want that to make you nervous or scared at all. Again, if you care, then you're not in any danger. I want to close with this. I'm going to pivot. One of the things that this prophet says to Eli is, you honored your sons more than you honored me. We live in a city and in a society where it's so easy to worship our beautiful children. We can do that. Don't do that. Does that mean honor your children more than me? Does that mean if you take your kid to baseball instead of church, you're honoring God? No. That's church and God aren't the same thing at all. They're not. If you're doing that regularly, you're not teaching your kids how to rest, and you need to. Rest, work, relationship. That's the rhythm of life that God has instituted for us. We all teach our kids how to work, and we all try to teach our kids how to relate very few of us teach our kids how to rest, and if we don't, they're going to have to learn it somewhere else. But that's not what's in view here. What Eli is judged for is a failure to discipline his kids. It's, he doesn't restrain them. It's, it's we cave in. That would be our maybe contemporary way of saying this. You honor your kids more than me. You just you cave in. There were some things that were important to you, some convictions that you had, some things that you knew were right and wrong, and you just caved. I, for me, it seems like the older they get, the easier, the easier it is to cave, the harder it is to kind of hold the line. Those of you who still have young ones may disagree. I feel like the young ones, they don't have that many words, and so it's kind of easy. Just put a video in, and they get distracted. Shut the door if they yell too loud. I, don't, I, I feel like with that one, it's a little bit easier. You may, your, your experience may be different. But the older they get, man, relentless at times. Don't, and nobody wants to eat dinner with her. We don't. And so we cave. We cave because we're trying to keep the peace and we want our kid back. Where's our smiling child? We lost them somewhere. For some of you, we cave because if we don't, we, our kids, we're, it's not just that we're afraid our kids will be left out. They will. We're, like, we've, we're saying we've got, we've got to figure out how to get through sixth grade. We've got to figure out middle school. We'll deal with the fallout on the back end. And so there are things that for you as a parent, you may say, "What well, this is not the best whether it's something with technology or something with a friend group or something about a curfew or something about dating, whatever those things are. And in your heart, you're going, this isn't best, but you're saying, I don't want that middle child. Nobody wants that. We're devastated as parents. And we feel like our kids are that. We want to do anything to fix it. Don't cave. Don't honor, that's honoring your kid above the Lord. And you're doing it with the best of intentions. And you very well may be right. There will be social consequences. And sometimes we're just tired. Don't you get worn out? I was telling the guys at nine, my oldest comes at nine. And she says all the time, you're so much easier on our youngest. You're so much easier on him than me. I'm like, absolutely. All day long. I'm worn out, and he's going to have to take care of me when I'm old. (laughs) He gets whatever he wants. (laughs) We don't do fair in our house. It's not a kingdom value. He gets whatever he wants. Not great parenting. I'll tell you if it pays off in terms of retirement strategy later. (laughs) 
how do you feel about that? Some of you parents, you're guilt conscious, don't do that. Don't start, don't move into that mode. Are there things that God has said to you that are important for you? That are convictions that you have and are you caving on them? Either because you're trying to keep the peace in your home. Because you don't want your kid to get left out. Or because you're just tired of fighting. You may need to get together with your spouse. Don't go to lunch and don't change anything. Don't change anything tonight with your kids. That's a snap reaction. You don't need to do that. But you may need to pray with your spouse. Are we doing this? And you may need to bring your kids into the mix. The older they get, the better it is to bring them into the mix and say, this is where we have some conviction. We feel like we don't ever need to have the Internet again. We, nobody gets a cell phone in our house forever. We're getting a landline, and you can never date. If that's where you get, <laughs> then you need to bring them into the mix and let them know that's what you're going to do. Hear the, and, you, and, and hear from them, again, the older they get. Particularly if your kids are Christians, the same Holy Spirit who lives within you lives within them. And so you want to, you want to try, you're their parent, Absolutely. But you want to interact with them around those things. Tell them, this is, where I have, this is where me and your mom or me and your dad have some convictions. And we feel like maybe we've, we've crossed a, a line a little bit. For our family, it's not, not speaking about anybody else, but for us. How do you feel about that? And what do we need to do about that? And how can we move in a direction? Again, you're not in danger of what Eli did and, and the way that Eli did it. But for all of us, there's this temptation because we do love our kids and we want them to flourish. When we see things, when we see them not flourishing, we can want to jump in and try to fix it really quick. And sometimes in our desire to fix it, we wind up putting their happiness above obedience to the Lord. Does that make sense? And you can do the same thing with your spouse and you can do the same thing. You can do that with any relationship. With the best of intentions, our desire to make the people we love okay in, the, in our quest to do that, we can wind up prioritizing their okayness above what we know to be good and right. And ultimately what that does is that puts you at odds with the Lord and you don't want that in your home. You're cutting yourself off from his grace, which is what you and your kids need, particularly in those times that are very difficult. And it doesn't mean middle school is never easy. It's it's not going to get better. It doesn't. But you don't want to try to go through that without the grace of God. Does that make sense? So if that's you, if you're sensing something, talk to your spouse first. Pray. If you know yourself and you know you're guilty, kind of a guilt-driven person, you're constantly thinking you screwed up and you messed up and you're then you for sure need to bring your spouse into the mix and maybe somebody else to make you don't need to snap decisions aren't helpful for anybody particularly for your for your teenagers and see what the lord's saying and then again I would encourage you particularly for teenagers or christians bring them in let them see what it's like hey here this is where we're wrestling we're 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 wrestling with what faithfulness to the lord looks like and and, and what you're asking of us and, and we're trying to figure it out we want you to help us Help us do that. Does that make sense? Let's pray. I'm going to quit talking.
God, my prayer for everyone in this room is that we would all, as we are looking at some of these, some of this stuff in the Old Testament, it's just hard. It's really hard. Is that we would know you better. We want to know you as a good father and as a consuming fire. We recognize, God, that your character didn't change from Malachi to Matthew, that you're the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, God, I pray for those of us who find this, help us. We need help. For each one of us, God, you would continue to fill out and expand our understanding of who you are as holy and as loving. We would hold firm to Jesus as the clearest representative and the clearest representation of your character. We look at all of these things through that grid. But God, we don't want to knock off the rough edges because we don't understand them. God, we want to live in that tension so that you can teach us more about who you are. God, I pray if there are any here who are engaging in some level of persistent rebellion, would you convict them right now? Father, would you send your spirit to convict them? Very specifically, the Holy Spirit always convicts of specific sins. That's condemnation. That's from the devil. Conviction is very specific. Because the Holy Spirit is trying to lead you to repent. He's not looking for you to feel bad. If something's in your mind, maybe there's a, a bit of a physical sensation there as well. I want you to respond to that in your own heart. Just repent. God, I confess that I'm, 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 I'm resisting you in this area of my life. And I pray that you give me grace to obey you there. That's how you deal with sin as a Christian. That's it. God, I want to pray for the parents in the room as we try to navigate these waters with our kids in a way that helps each one of them run the race that you've marked out for them. Every one of them is precious. do right by them and ultimately God our our deepest and highest and best is to do right by you so help us and God we confess most of the time we don't know what we're doing we're just trying to figure it out also so God if there are any families in the room if there are any parents in here who have who are honoring their kids over you if there are any parents who have are living against their convictions. God, would you speak them on the same page with you and then would you give them grace to speak to their kid about those decisions and you would bring harmony and peace in their home around those choices and decisions. God, I pray for people who are prone to being driven by guilt And I pray they would be set free from that this morning. They would only be led by your spirit, not driven by guilt, not driven by expectations, not driven 
um, even by their own desire to do things well, only led by your spirit, Father. So would you move among our, move in our families, God, that you would have the place of highest honor in each one of our houses and everyone living under that roof would be blessed fully and deeply because you're being honored first and most. In Jesus' name, amen.